Attention all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. It's MASH Matters, the podcast celebrating the greatest television show of all time. I'm Ryan Patrick, and he is Private Igor, Jeff Maxwell. Hello, Jeff. Thank you, Ryan. Hello, Ryan. It is Private Igor Straminsky, of course. Yes. Private Igor Straminsky. And, you know, we've had a a little uh, loss in the MASH family. Yeah. And uh, the reason I want to say specifically Igor Straminsky uh, is for a reason. The loss we've suffered is uh, the executive producer, Mr. Burt Metcalf, who for many years was the captain of the ship and kind of drove the show after Gene Reynolds and Larry Gelbart left. Burt kind of rose to the occasion and became the captain of the ship, and he did a great job. And uh, he passed away a little while ago, and we w- will all miss him. He was a good guy. Yeah, he passed away uh, July 27th. He was 87 years old. And uh, we actually got to talk to Bert back when Gene Reynolds passed away. You know, it's funny, Jeff, at the time when we when we did that interview with Bert, we originally said, hey, Bert, can we have like 15 minutes of your time to just talk about Gene Reynolds and your memories of, of working with Gene? And he's like, sure. So we connect and we start talking to him about Gene. And then Bert talks for an hour. <laughs> he just kept talking, <laughs> which was great. You know, I mean, it was it was fantastic because we were able to use a little bit of a snippet from him talking about Gene. And then later we were able to publish the entire interview with Bert Metcalf. What was kind of cool about that, too, is uh, that interview was uh, heard by a gentleman named uh, Richard Sandomir. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He writes obituaries for the New York Times, and he was able to actually uh, use some information from our interview for his obituary in the New York Times. So, we, Jeff, we have been featured in the New York Times. How about that? We have. It's too bad it takes somebody to die to do that. Well, but, yes. You yes, know, you does. get, yes, you get in the Times the best way you can. You know? <laughs> I mean, <what> the- <laughs> At least it, it wasn't our names in there because... Because we were busted for a meth lab or something, you know, it was kind of, <laughs> yes, it was right. nice to have your name in the New York Times uh, for a remembrance. But um, yeah. also our friend, Mark Freeman, he was our first interview ever on the podcast. I think he was episode three or four or something like that. Mark is a very talented writer and wrote a couple of different articles about MASH, an oral history of the finale, and also another article with an oral history of just some memories of MASH. And Mark wrote a really touching piece also, and then uh, graciously allowed us to publish it on our website. You can actually find the link to that tribute to Burt Metcalf in the show notes for this episode at mashmatters.com. It's a great read, and he did a wonderful job talking about Bert and getting some uh, comments by cast members and so forth. I, I, you know, Bert started out on the show as a casting director, and then uh, he became associate producer. And then a producer, and then he inherited the uh, throne of executive producer and ran the show. He also became a very qualified director as well. And he started before he became a casting director, he was an actor. So Bert yeah. was quite a guy. He's done it all. You know, he really did. He was responsible. I don't know whether we've told the story before or may show up somewhere, but it's apparently true that when one day it was decided that Igor had to have a last name. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were sitting around, I guess, at Bert's house. Uh, he and some of the writers, and they were working on the script. And they said, "Hey, we gotta, we gotta name this guy. We gotta have a na- last name for Igor. Special situation in the script." And Bert thought for a second and said, "Hmm, how about Straminsky?" <laughs> <laughs> As a play on Stravinsky, so Igor Straminsky. Yes. So thank you, Bert, 
for giving Igor his last name. He will be internally <laughs> grateful for that. Our thoughts, obviously, with Bert's family, his wife, Jan, was actually on the show. She's one of the uh, many nurses that was on the show. Mm-hmm. MASH fans, if you saw her picture, you go, oh, yeah, her. Mm-hmm. Yep. So today, Jeff, we are going to talk to somebody. Uh, you know, we go from talking about one giant behind the scenes of MASH to another giant behind the scenes of MASH. Today, we're going to be talking about Charles S. Dubin. That is a name that MASH fans have seen in many, many credits because he directed more MASH episodes than anybody else. He was known as Charles Dubin and Charles S. Dubin, but I think behind the scenes, you knew him more as Charlie Dubin. And the guest that we have today knew him as dad, because we're going to be talking to his daughter, Zan. And Zan is a delightful, uh, wonderful person as well. And it's going to be really fun to hear. She's going to tell some really great stories about her father. Uh, I loved Charlie. We all did. Everybody in the cast and the crew loved him. He was a, a very sweet, warm, kind, wonderful, supportive soul behind the camera. It, it was a great loss um, because, it, indeed, everybody loved him and felt very sad when he passed away. But he was a wonderful man, and he did some wonderful shows. And uh, Zan's going to talk about him, and so are we. So we are now going to celebrate this wonderful man with our conversation with Zan Dubin. We are here speaking with a very delightful woman named Zan Dubin. And she's delightful um, because she is herself a delightful person, and also because she is the daughter of one of the uh, most beloved directors on the television show MASH. I'm pretty sure, uh, saying this correctly, he uh, directed more MASH episodes than any other director connected with the show, including Alan Alda and everybody else. So he was the guy, I think it's like 46 or 50 episodes or something like that. 44. 44 episodes. That's a lot of episodes. Yeah. Before we get into him, I'd like to talk about you a little bit because you have created a wonderful business. Kind of tell us what you do. What what are you doing now? What What is the business so we all know? Well, first of all, Jeff, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. And if I cry throughout this thing, you'll understand. I still, you know, dad died in 2011, but I'm just a crying type person and just love him so much. It's just a true honor to be here. Um, see, I'm already starting. Oh, but I'm anyway. crying now. <laughs> oh, golly. Um, no, I, I'm in public relations. I uh, I was a newspaper reporter and um, transitioned about 20 years ago into PR and was in the right place at the right time. And I specialize in sustainability, things like electric cars and solar. And today is, an, is a landmark day. The Senate just like maybe 30 minutes ago passed. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act, hmm. but it's it's a climate bill that has been like three decades in the making and in the resistance. And it finally got done. So it's a great day for the planet, for its inhabitants and for my business. So there you go. <laughs> Wonderful. In that order. <laughs> in that order. I was reading a little bit about the business and you you're you're doing something to make a difference in the world and for the world. And that's a wonderful thing to do in any business. Well, and it's directly related to the parents that I had, you know, both of them, as you probably know, dad was blacklisted in the late fifties and and again in the early sixties. And so was my mom. She was a television director, one of the very, very few in the, I think it was early fifties. And so they put their lives on the line and their livelihood 
hoods, even with two kids in tow, to stand for what they believed in. So there I go crying again. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And they both had, did they both testify before the uh, the committee and everything? Great question. My mom did not. I, you know, she was not nearly as prominent, you know, factually as my dad. So they just pulled him up and he took the fifth. Uh, numerous times. And, and if somebody is listening, because we have a lot of young listeners too, who may not know what we're talking about. This was a dark time in our country's history and entertainment history. Can you just give a Reader's Digest version of what was blacklisted? What was the committee that they were testifying in, in front of? Right. So it was called the House Un-American Activities Committee and a period known as the Red Scare where, uh, you know, Senate committee and, and a lot of leading industrialists, et cetera, thought that certain Americans were members of the American Communist Party. And they did not like that. <laughs> There's a long history. I won't, won't go into that too much. But, you know, I will say this because I've said it publicly before. My dad was. He was a card-carrying member of the American Communist Party. And, the uh, you know, I could pull up an article be, uh, because it very succinctly explained why he believed in these old fashioned values like racial justice, uh, health care for all, you know, uh, equal pay, pay for what one, you know, deserve it pay. And, and it was those fundamental things that he stood for. And I found a letter recently, which, again, it's kind of a long story, but he felt in this letter, at least, that the reason that this committee was formed and the committee members would pull up these very high profile entertainment figures was to make examples of them, of course. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But Charlie felt that it was really mostly about their next year's budget, getting their appropriation. Every committee has to have its annual budget. So he said they would do this time and again, even though there was zero evidence that he had done anything to harm this country. And in fact, in the letter, he says, au contraire, you know, we were trying to make it a better place, but they had to haul them up and make examples of them. And it, as you, well, for those who don't know, as you said, Ryan, it was a very dark period and some people committed suicide over this. They couldn't get work. You know, um, they had families too. And Charlie had to go to London for a little bit to get work there. And then the way he dug himself out of it was, directing commercials because you didn't have to have a credit. So he could keep working, doing what he loved, but didn't have to use a name. And he had beloved people at a company called MPO that was uh, making these commercials at, at the time. And I understand that he he was working while he was called to testify. And after he pled the fifth as many times as he did, uh, he was fired. That's right, by NBC. Yep. Yeah. Again, even though there was no evidence, mm -hmm. very sad. I was reading that your dad had early aspirations to be an opera singer. And then he studied acting. He had some success with acting. He had some small parts on Broadway. What led him from doing all of that to really being one of the first directors in the earliest days of television? That's another great question. Thank you. Uh, I think he was at Hilltop Lodge, which was, you know, one of sort of these resorts in the Catskills. Uh, and he was acting. Uh, and one day, this a lot of, you know, aspiring actors would go to these resorts during the summers for, to, to entertain and get paid for it. And I think he used to say that, like, one day, the company lost their stage manager. 
And I guess they thought Charlie could stage manage. So they said, Charlie, would you like to do that? And that was kind of his first taste closest to directing. And then directing came next and he just fell in love with it. Hmm. Uh, He loved to have the last word and tell people what to do. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that was sort of part of it. But yes, you know, I, I think he clearly loved it more than acting. Well, he he was a uh, he was a beloved director on on the set. I, I you know I fell in love with him the first time I met him. He he was an elegant man, a very elegant man, and the way he conducted himself uh, on the set and even the, during the directing process, he was elegant with it. And you know he you kind of he was with a group of pretty uh, you know electric high power people. But his elegance really helped everybody be there and do what they were supposed to do. It was wonderful to watch him do it. So nice. Uh, I worked as a PA on sets for a while. And what I remember is that he knew there could be 60 crew members, right? He knew everyone's first name. And he would call people, use the word sir. So he had that respect. And I do have, I'd love to share an email from Alan, uh, You know, I met Alan on the set, but I I didn't really hang out that much, but he knew me and he knew my name. And then when when dad died, you know, I got a lot of lovely emails from people. And then one from this very strange email name that kind of looked like gibberish. Fortunately, I clicked (laughs) on it and I'm going to read you what it says, because I think it really describes, you know, his attitude on the set, because I'm sure you guys have talked about this a lot, but First of all, it was family. It was more like family than work. And second of all, a tremendous amount of humor on the set. Here's the email that I clicked on, and it was from Alan. And it said, I was very sorry to hear of your dad's death. All of us who knew him remember him with great affection. As skilled as he was at his work, he was always good humored and kind, no matter how late it was or how badly things might be going on the set. He always delighted us with a joke when frustration was high. He was calm in the center of the storm, and his modest goodness was a model for all of us. Wow, that's beautiful. Very nice. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, I have something here. uh, Mike Farrell wrote, it's a terrible loss. He was the favorite director of the group of us on MASH, a man with history and extraordinary career, ballet, classical music behind him. He became part of the family. Um, yeah, and he, he really did. Let's see, Gene Reynolds, who first worked with Charlie on uh, Room 222, and then later on Lou Grant, said he was a dear friend. Charlie was gifted, had a fine eye for comedy, and understood the material. He was always an interesting filmmaker, staged well, handled the camera well, and he had a great gift for getting along with people. <laughs> now, my question is, Zan, was he like that at home? <laughs> In between the beatings. Uh, (laughs) it's a scoop it's a scoop (laughs) you know what he what he really was i mean i i think he got really mad at me once and i think i deserved it (laughs) yeah yeah and you know the humor above all very corny jokes he was was he in i don't think he was actually in vaudeville but goes back to that kind of old-fashioned slapstick humor and if you look at some of the humor in mash it's it's similar to that and i think that's also what united them so and it's probably especially with gene reynolds and uh you know bert i think they all kind of shared that sort of appreciation 
Well, certainly a, a guy who spends time in the Catskills got to be uh, influenced by some of that humor. <laughs> Absolutely. So did you ever have any aspirations to go into show business or as a performer, actress? You know, for a minute, um, he got me into ballet. My parents introduced me to ballet. So I was a very serious student with that. And then when I got out of that, because it's kind of a very demanding career, I took like one acting class. It, it just wasn't me. Mm. But, you know, he used to talk a lot about just how horribly rough it was. He had this one saying, and he would always try to get his friends jobs on the set, which he did, you know, often. But he would say, many a rose is born to blush unseen. The tragedy of so many talented people not being able to fulfill their dreams. I don't think that turned me off from it. Um, I just think I didn't have the knack for it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he had a huge heart that way for actors. He did. And and it was very, uh, very visible when, you know, everybody was doing a scene. Uh, And he was, as I use the word elegant, he was he was quietly firm. Mm. Uh, so if there needed to be a moment which he had to get across to somebody, he wasn't a guy who went, he was just beautifully quiet about it. And everybody went, oh, OK. <laughs> I don't know. He had a great talent for that. Yeah, that's fascinating because let's face it, even, you know, these great examples of humanity like Alan Alda, the director is kind of the last word. And if he sees something that's not working, he, I mean, there were probably a couple of people. In fact, I know there was at least one actor that Charlie just did not get along with, or they didn't get along with Charlie because he had his ideas, but he must have had a way of respecting the actor, but giving feedback, you know? Mm -hmm. So are we talking about an actor on MASH? Not on Nash. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought I was waiting was for it, another Was scoop. it Jeff? You oh, can be yeah. honest. Was it Jeff? Was it me? Oh, tell me. I'm okay. It was, it was Jeff. It was Jeff. I knew it. I knew it. That's stupid Igor. What are we going to do with that guy? <laughs> so he has, you know, success early in uh, television directing. He goes on to direct a lot of shows. And then in 1958, as we mentioned earlier, he is subpoenaed to testify in front of the Committee of Un-American Activities. From that, he is then blacklisted. And the blacklist was a list of performers. It was a list of directors, producers, people in the entertainment industry who were found to be communist sympathizers and therefore were deemed unacceptable and, and could not work. Many, many people did lose their careers. They and And as you said, they even lost their lives over it as well. Your father was one of the ones who survived that, who was able to bounce back from that. And I wonder, how does somebody bounce back from that? And and thankfully, he did. You know, it was a few years later that he was able, through his commercial work, he was able to start directing again on television. And then, then that led to a prolific career. But how does one go through all that? and still want to do it and still have such a positive outlook. On top of that, I'm curious if you have the understanding about himself as emotionally, you know, affected by that. He was able to rise to the occasion, obviously, and you can tell us how, but what emotionally was, was it an emotional impact on, you know, your family, just him? How did that work? I'm certain he was under extreme stress. I don't think, you know, he ever 
considered anything dire, but I was six months old when they knocked on the door with the subpoena. So here was this guy, because he used to tell that story all the time, and they were absolutely terrified. I know this. But, of course, being good parents, they, they shielded us from that. But I think what won through for him emotionally was this tremendous desire. You know, if, if you can say anything about my family, is that it, it people of passion. And he had a passion for the arts and for directing and for television and film. And, and he came from good stock, you know, where you just kind of get up and, and try again. And then you guys probably know better than I did. What was the year that was it Kirk Douglas who came out and and basically ended the blacklist because it was the movie Spartacus and he he hired Dalton Trumbo, right? And he said, I'm giving this gentleman who had been blacklisted an on-screen credit. And so I'm sure that that helped and things on the outside started to get better. And then, you know, here's a tip for anyone who's looking to enter the working world. There's two things that, or maybe three things that are going to get you through. Be really good work really hard and be fun to work with. So I, I think <laughs> yeah, that's right. how Charlie, you know, checked all the boxes, huh? <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh. Uh, Spartacus was 1960. And then, it, so it was 1961 when your dad really got another crack at primetime television. Interesting. Outside of MASH, I think one of the things he's most known for was directing the telecast of Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. Oh, okay. Talk about crying. Okay. So what are your memories of that? <laughs> so, of course, that wasn't a series. It was just a, a, a you know, tele- like a movie. It was like basically, yeah. you know, a te- televised event. Right. Uh, so from my perspective, that meant I didn't have many chances to visit the set. And I have no memory of visiting the set. However, I have to say that even more than MASH, that's where my heart is. Cause I was a little girl and I grew up watching my daddy's Cinderella and I know all the words by heart. <laughs> um, yeah. And I remain friendly with Leslie Ann Warren. And oh, I, can I tell the story? It's such a heartbreakingly beautiful, uplifting story. Oh so- no, we don't want it. We don't want that kind of story. <laughs> we want, no, no. Uplifting heart, heart. No, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> No, please tell the story, please. Right? Okay, so, you know, he actually produced and directed that. So it was also his job to cast it, at least the stars. So, yes, he went out and he saw Leslie Ann on Broadway. It was off. He just saw her. I think she was 17 and a half. And he said, that's my Cinderella. So he brought her in and he had her audition singing with, um, I forgot which one it was, Rogers or Hammerstein, probably Richard Rogers. And she blew it. She was so nervous that she blew the audition. And, you know, they basically said, sorry, that's not the one for us. And he said, I'm sorry, but we need to give her another chance. Oh. So he brought her in and it, I think it was it was Richard Rogers home. And he sat her down next to him at the piano and taught her to sing My Funny Valentine. Oh, boy. And in that much more relaxed atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera, she nailed it, and the rest is history. And oh, how wonderful. That's a great, that is a great story. I got chills. That's yeah. a great story. And and it's wow. not to brag too much on my dad, but it was because he gave her a second chance. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole production did, too. So Yeah. 
Well, he saw something and he knew it. He, he he knew it in his soul and heart that that's that was the right person. And when you watch it, you see it too. I mean, yeah. she was so vulnerable and so talented. So, hmm. and she remembers him so fondly. She's crazy about him. <laughs> seems like there's a lot of that going around. Yeah, yeah that seems to be. <laughs> All right, let's get to the dark stuff. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did he find his way to Mash? So. We were in Manhattan, right? The family. And and then we moved to the suburbs, but we were in New York. And I'm not an expert on, you know, Hollywood and all of this stuff. But bottom line, I think, was that if you wanted to do dramatic, episodic television, you had to be in L.A., in Hollywood, not in New York. So we moved. I think it was 1967. I was nine years old. And, and that's when real things really took off for him. You know, that's when he had access, not immediately, but to the things like, you know, the Kojak and Roots and Hawaii Five-O and all those kinds of things. And then, yeah, he was just very lucky to be one of, you know, those working directors. Uh, although, you know, he did. Here's the dark stuff. It's not that dark. But at the end of every, pretty much every show, he would worry if there would ever be another one again. Really? You know, and I, I think that's endemic to Hollywood too. Jeff, it you is. probably know about that. Yes, I'm I'm aware of that worry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he, he did always want to do movies. I will say that. He adored, his, his favorites were Ingmar Bergman and Francois Truffaut and of course Fellini, you know. So that was always his dream. Never quite got there. Did you have a, a favorite television show that you you and he would watch together or you and your mom he would watch or something? Was there some kind of a family TV show that you get together and watch? Besides the ones that he did or? <laughs> yeah, besides <laughs> the one. Yeah. We loved everything just like everybody else. What was the one with Mars, you know, um, or the Martian? My favorite Martian. Oh, yeah. Oh, Ray back yeah. Kind of thing, yeah. Back in the day. But, yeah. but what it looked like in our family that I recall, my point of view, was that whenever something would come on that he did, we would all be, you know, sitting around the TV and then his credit would come and then we would all applaud. And then yeah. I, I didn't care so much after that. point. <laughs> he would watch the shows that he directed because some people don't like to watch their own work. I guess he did. Yeah. He did. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, he's got a, a huge list of shows that he did. Oh I mean, I'm gosh. not going to read them all, but there's tons of them. It's amazing. It's really, it's amazing. A very, very prolific. I mean, that's just a lot of work. Yeah. You know, what he did was constant work and, and so many different kinds of shows. Really amazing. And so I ask that you guys have a, a show that you all watch together because we, we have so many people talk to us and write us and so forth that they say, well, I watched MASH with my family and that's why it's so important to me. And, you know, I was a little girl or a little boy and I was nine years old and watching it with my mother and father made it so special. And that's why, you know, 25 years later, they're still talking about it and still feel it emotionally. So you guys, now your mom was a filmmaker too, wasn't she? Television, yeah, it was short-lived for her, I think partly because of the blacklist and partly because she was a woman director in TV and that just oh. you know, so <laughs> yeah. rare. And, yeah. and also then she had a family, so mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Jeff mentioned earlier uh, when he was reading the tribute from Gene Reynolds that Gene and, and your dad had worked together on Room 222. Is that the first time that they had worked together and was that what opened the door for him to work on MASH? That's what my memory serves. Yes, yeah. that's exactly it. Room 222 over to MASH. 
And then on MASH, as we mentioned earlier, too, he directed more episodes than any. 44, he was nominated for three directing Emmys. The first episode he directed was Smiling Jack. And then some of the fan favorites, Mail Call 3, Major Topper, Goodbye Radars, Parts 1 and 2, Old Soldiers, uh, The Tooth Shall Set You Free, The Moon Is Not Blue, Are You Now Margaret, which obviously has overtones uh, to the, uh, the, the blacklist and the committee. As you were talking, I'm sure many MASH fans were thinking, oh, this sounds familiar. And then he also directed another fan favorite, which is Point of View, which the entire episode was the point of view from the soldier. That was his favorite. Was it really? Yes, because it was so creative. And, you know, it didn't look visually or like any other episode. Absolutely. The, the entire uh, episode, as you said, the camera was from the point of view of a wounded soldier on a stretcher. Yeah. And, and I, I've forgotten if he, I'm sure he won a DGA award for that, but but it was more, you know, creative. It broke the mold and more yes. like filmmaking for him. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I still don't know how he did it. I honestly don't know <laughs> how they were able to do that. You know, nowadays, it's so much easier to do things like that. But back then, when you had bigger, bulkier equipment and you were shooting on film, how they were able to do that with the actor who was laying in the bed, I'm still amazed how he was able to pull that off. It'd be so fun to find like a cinematographer who worked on the show and made that possible. Yes. That's a good point. I wish wish we knew, you know, Bill Jurgensen was the uh, director of, of cinematography during the show. And then later there was another gentleman whose name I can't remember. It'd be interesting to see if we could get in contact with either one of them and talk about some of this. You know, that, that reminds me of an old showbiz, it's not a showbiz story, but it's, it is. He did the New York city ballet nutcracker probably in the fifties, maybe early sixties. And there's one particular scene that every ballet lover knows very well. It's, it's a pas de deux dance of two men and a woman And it's, I believe this is going to sound kind of racist, but remember, this is the 50s. So it's like Turkish, right? And exotic, what we used to call as exotic. And so Charlie had to come up with some sort of special effects for this. So he made it look kind of smoky, right? And how they got that smoky effect was literally a cigarette. He had (laughs) a cigarette smoker on the set blow smoke in front of the camera. <laughs> and when you compare that to the digital effects and things, I can't even articulate. Wow. That's a great story. <laughs> Harvey, blow more smoke. Yes. <laughs> you can't do that today. Outside of Matt, I mean, because he directed so many, you mentioned a, a few of them earlier and, you know, Lou Grant and Rockford Files and, Sanford and Son and Ironside, Matlock, and my generation grew up watching PBS, and I found out that he directed MathNet episodes on Square One TV. I loved Square One TV. Outside of of, of Mash, uh, which obviously you know we we focus on here, but w- were there shows that really? I'm sure that all of them held a special place in his heart in some way. But were there were there other shows that were also special to him? Yes, the Alex Haley Roots. Oh, okay. Remember Roots? Yeah. You know, they should bring that back. I'm sure it looks very dated today, but it was groundbreaking. And, uh, you know, it's been a while since I've thought about it, but it was all, wasn't it basically about the slave trade and Mm -hmm. the first African-Americans brought over here? And uh, I think it was a two-part miniseries because Charlie, I think, did the second part, but that was very, very meaningful. Wow. And, And you mentioned MathNet. 
which was um, kind of a, a teaching program to teach kids how to do math and logic uh, in the guise of a detective show. Yeah, it was a takeoff or, of, or a parody right, of, of Dragon. Exactly. Yes. And that was the one show that he won an Emmy for. Was it really? Mm. It was the one and only. And they used to say that Nash for him was challenging as far as awards went, because it always fell between was it drama or was it comedy? Mm -hmm. So that was rough. But I remember the day that he won that Emmy and the point of pride is that he was up against Jim. Is it Henson? With the Muppets? Yeah. Jim Henson. Yeah. He beat Jim Henson? You beat <laughs> wow. Jim Henson. Holy moly. That's not easy to do. That's David taking out Goliath right there. Yeah. Wow, about that. Was there anything that kind of bugged him about show business or about the process that you can talk about <laughs> or say? Yeah, that's a great question because it's something that probably only a daughter could tell in that, you know, he would, he would be very upset by the producers, right? They let's, I'm going to just say it. He's gone. He wouldn't mind. I mean, they were the pressure point, right? Because they always wanted it quicker, you know, and under budget Yeah, that was time and money, time and money. And, you know, he, okay, this is going to sound really uh, whatever highfalutin, but he was an artist and he wanted to get the, the best work done, which I'm sure this is a classic tension between, you know, mm-hmm. producers on top and, and the creative crew. So uh, that was the stress for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When did he retire from the business? I think he was around 72, something like that. What What did he do with his time after he retired? Did he have <laughs> hobbies? What did he like to do? He would just talk to me. That's all he needed. For one thing, he joined a choir, which goes right back huh. to his love of opera singing. Opera, yeah. And then he met a wonderful woman named Mary Lou Chase, my stepmom. She about four days ago turned 95 and swear she's 60 and she was a music lover as well and so he actually um helped her and encouraged her to produce a documentary about her longtime piano teacher who was the son of a famous musician Arthur Schnabel so that was wonderful because he sort of produced that documentary with her and then he inherited a big step family along with Mary Lou and she had three marriages. Um, Charlie was her third and 10 children, three of her own and six. And so I'm number 10. And she's 95. She is not. I'm serious. You, you would not think she's a day over 70, which. Wow. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we, we say that partly it's because she still plays piano every single day. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of years ago, you wrote an op-ed that was uh, published, I believe, and was it USA Today? And the title of that was, My Dad Directed MASH, His Humor, Hope, and Optimism is What America Needs Now. At least among MASH fans, it, it went viral. <laughs> oh, so uh, nice. So it was, it was, and it was wonderful. It was a wonderful read. And we'll, we'll put a link to that also in the show notes if, if you have not read that. Um, but what, what inspired that? Her name is Dr. Jillian Horton. And she might be a great next guest for you. Um, she's a Canadian doctor who was in, partly inspired to become a doctor because of Match, okay, mm. and because of Alan, and because of the way that he was able to practice medicine with humor, hope, and love. And so she wrote a piece, and it appeared here in the LA Times. That's my hometown. And um, and I read it and it just inspired me. And we've since become friends. Again, she's up in Canada. 
Um, but we contacted each other on Twitter and uh, yeah. So, and then it was, it was again, all about Hawkeye's attitude and similar to Charlie's on the set. Always some humor and hope. How was your dad able to keep his humor and his hope and his optimism even during those dark times? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, I think he loved laugh and, and, you know, I'll just take us back to his father was in the czar's army in Russia and escaped with his life and walked across Germany, walking um, at night and sleeping in graveyards during the day. Um, So it was, again, that kind of stock, you know, and that forward thinking and hopefulness. And I think that had to be part of it. MASH uh, was so special because it was always about something. You know, that was what the, the call of the wild is for everybody. Let's make it about something. You, Zandubin, are about something. And uh, the things that you do are inspiring other people. So hats off to you for doing that. I'm proud to know you. I'm very glad that we're friends. And I'm I'm so grateful that I got an opportunity to work with somebody so special as your father, uh, because he influenced me and I learned from him. I watched him and I learned from him. I learned about how to be a, a decent person. Uh, on a group of people and in a pressured environment. And uh, all of that was uh, was almost seamless for him. But you had to watch real hard <laughs> to see how he did it. Uh, but I tried to take as many lessons from him as I could. Yes, thank, I feel very grateful and very honored to be here. And, and just wonderful that you both carry on something that so many people love. Can I tell one last quick story? It's uh, Absolutely. Uh, it's relevant and recent. Um, so in the height of the pandemic, I found this beautiful photo of the major cast and they were all wearing a mask, right? Which at that moment, America had a new relationship with, but it yeah. looked, you know, two years earlier, it had just would have looked like the cast, you know, ready for surgery. Mm-hmm. It was really beautiful. They were all beaming. You know how you can see people smiling even with their masks on. So I was all, you know, up about how America must wear their masks. So I emailed it to Alan and I only once had communicated with him over email. And that was to receive that beautiful note when my dad died. Um, And I said, Alan, you ought to get the whole crew and cast and go on a national tour to tell America to wear their masks. So I never heard back from him. But 30 minutes later, he tweeted that photograph. And 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 he said the most beautiful line, because, you know, I don't think he really likes to, you know, push any campaign. Right. But he said he just posted the photo and said surgery is not the only way to save lives. Oh, and it it got like sixty five thousand likes. Yeah, that that guy's kind of got away with words. Uh, (laughs) He He does. He should he should maybe make that a career. (laughs) He he could. I think he'd have a future in that, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Zan Dubin, I, you know, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for sharing your very sensitive and wonderful part of your life. And uh, we appreciate you being willing to do that. And uh, you're delightful. And uh, thank you so much for being here and talking with us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Ryan. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Zan. You know, I'm saddened because of the three of us. I'm the only one who never got to meet Mr. Dubin. Mm. 
you were able to work with him, Jeff. And I know he had a he was a big influence on you, a big inspiration for you. He was uh, mostly really because he was very nurturing. So if something was going on, it wasn't going so well. Uh, you never got somebody breathing down your neck going. Ah! <laughs> he was just a very quiet, <laughs> elegant kind of guy who would maybe give a little suggestion or look at you with a smile or something. And suddenly you would know what to do. I don't know how, but you did. Uh, so he was a very, very gracious, very talented director from, you know, with such a huge, wonderful entertainment background. And he knew so much and he gave so much uh, every time he got on that set and, you know, said, cut print boy he was he was right on top of every everything and he loved mash and uh mash loved him really great and isn't his daughter zan a delight yes she was i yes absolutely you can tell too that she just had so much love and respect for her father mm-hmm. you know when you were talking about how he was and being gentle and calm under pressure and just a nurturing soul We need so much more of that in the world right now. So uh, let's all try to be Charlie Dubin this week. How about (laughs) Yeah. Hey, that's a good idea. Let's do Charlie Dubin month. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just say Charlie Dubin year. Let's just cover the whole year. How about it? Why not? Starting today. Starting today. Right now. (laughs) Hey, thank you for listening, and thank you to all of our Patreon VIPs who support this show. You, too, can support the show at mashmatters.com slash support. We will be uh, doing our big salute to some more Patreon VIPs in the next episode. But you can also reach us at mashmatterspodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and you can call and leave a voicemail, 513-436-4077. Or you can just come over to the house. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Until next time, here's looking up your old address. (laughs) 